Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 202 of The Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're revisiting one of our favorite episodes we did with Haben Gurma back last year after the 2017 Clio Cloud Conference about accessibility and the law. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Smokeball, New Law Business Model, and Allocate. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so please stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on in the show. So we've launched a new... We keep launching new things. We've launched a new I thing. I mean, this isn't all that new, We've and we've I think we've alluded to it once or twice. So if you listened to last week's episode 201 about money with Greg Crabtree, we are bringing him back in a few different ways over the course of the month. First, he is going to do a private expert workshop with the members of our lab and lab pro groups. We have part of those programs is a monthly workshop with an expert, and we're bringing Greg back to do kind of one-on-one coaching and training with that group later this month. But then we also, in our Facebook group for insiders, which is free, we're doing this month dedicating our book club to his book, Straight Talk, Big Profits, otherwise (laughs) often known as Simple Numbers. And in that book club, we will both kind of spend the month walking through a group discussion about the book. And then Sam and Stephanie will host a Facebook Live interactive discussion about it. And so there are some great opportunities to engage further with the specific content of Greg Crabtree's book and methodology, but also generally to do some troubleshooting and strategy around your firm's finances. And here's the deal. Like if you heard our podcast last week in which we introduced our new segment, hey, Aaron, what are you reading? (laughs) We're not doing that this week. <laughs> We're not. It's an occasional that's the, segment. That's the name of the segment. Yes. Uh, Aaron reads a ton of business books. So challenge the listeners, read one through the entire month of December. And actually, I think this is a really good one to read because Greg really breaks down what it takes as far as financial strategy to move your business forward. I know at least one of our lab members is using Greg's system and maybe even hiring Greg as a consultant to move their practice forward and has some really amazing results. And hopefully we'll get them on the podcast at some point too to talk about their strategy. But it's a great book, good resource. If you enjoyed the podcast or it got you thinking or you just want to be thinking about business, check it out. And whether or not you decide to join book club, get in on lab. If you're a solo or small firm lawyer in the U.S. and Canada, you are eligible to join our free Lawyerist Insiders Facebook group. And you can do that by visiting lawyerist.com and up on the community menu, just go under join and you can join right there. That's two weeks in a row of us chatting about books. That's right. We love books. I have like five book t-shirts. In fact, I should start cycling through them on lens so people can see. Or at least during book club. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with David Flato from Allocate, and then we'll hear my conversation with Haben Gurma. Hey there, this is David from Allocate, co-founder and CEO. Allocate is an app that allows lawyers to keep track of their billable hours automatically, passively, and it does that by basically keeping track of time spent on your computer, time spent emails, documents, things like that, and automatically correlating that with the different matters and clients that you're working on. Very cool. Thanks for being with us today, David. So you want to address the myth you say that lawyers overbill their clients. So tell me what you're thinking there. 
Yeah, absolutely. This was probably one of the most surprising things that, that we found. You know, um, as someone who consumes legal services, I always thought that lawyers, you know, like many people, believe that lawyers are overbilling their clients. And it was surprising to find that they're actually underbilling their clients. And, and we found that one in our own data by looking at how many hours per day lawyers are billing, and two by a more comprehensive study by CLIA that shows that only 2.4 hours of a lawyer's day are billable. So the big numbers, the hourly fees that lawyers charge is really kind of misleading because they're just not charging that many hours in a day, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, as a consumer, I always imagined a lawyer billing eight, nine, ten hours mm -hmm. a day. And to find that it was only 2.4 hours, you know, it was, it was pretty shocking and kind of wondering where does all that time go? Um, was a big question we had. So how can lawyers correct some of the underbilling and get themselves back up to, say, even, not exactly overbilling? Right. Yeah, great question. So I think that that number comes from a few factors. One, you know, there's a certain amount of client work that they're only having per day. And, you know, if you don't have legal work to work on, you can't put your clients, obviously. So one is, you know, growing your firm, growing your client base. I think the second thing that, that you'll see is that, a lot of lawyers are spending a lot of time on administrative tasks, overhead, things that you really can't bill your your for. So cutting down on that category will allow you to increase your billable hours and, and improve profitability. And then I guess the third one is, and more related to what Allocate is trying to do, is a lot of the time that they are you know, actually working for clients just slips through the cracks and they can't actually bill for it. And that's where Allocate really steps in and tries to help out where we're automatically capturing all of that data and not letting it slip through the cracks. So the idea is you're hiring an AI assistant to do your billing for you, or at least take some of it off your plate, thereby saving some time that you could reallocate to directly billing on client projects. And hopefully you'll lose less of the time that you might if you are, say, trying to reconstruct your time at the end of the day or week or geez, month. Exactly. We, we find that you know lawyers are spending a, a lot of time just even keeping track of their time. So yeah. they go back at the end of the day and they're spending hours, you know, every month just writing either things by hand, using start-stop timers and all that, you know, it adds up over time and that's time that you could be spent going out, getting more clients, you know, providing legal services for your customers. Well, and I suppose if something like this helps to make lawyers a little bit more efficient, then in theory, that could also lower the cost of legal services over time and maybe help close the access to justice gap, help lawyers compete with some of the lower cost alternatives to lawyers that are entering the market and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually one of the things we've noticed. There's been a rise of these turnkey solutions like LegalZoom, Atrium that are, are really trying to provide lower cost alternatives to your traditional mom, pop, solo, small legal firms. And, you know, one way of helping them compete with these solutions is by making their firms more efficient, making them more profitable. And then the masses of lawyers there can provide more access to justice for more people. So, you know, I think 80% of lawyers in America are at small solo law firms, right? And so, you know, by displacing them with new up and coming technologies, you're actually you know, at risk there. So if you'd like to learn more about Allocate, you can learn more at legal.allocate.ai slash lawyerist and download a pamphlet about artificially intelligent time tracking. Thanks so much for being with us, David. Thank you. Okay, go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Habin Gurma. I work as a disability rights lawyer 
public speaker and author. I teach organizations about the value of disability. Disability can be an asset to a community and organization, and it's a matter of learning about how to be accessible and what are the different things we can do as a community to make sure our websites, our apps, our facilities are welcoming to everyone. Haben, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Maybe we should start by talking about how we talk about disability. What are some of the words that we should be using when we need to distinguish between people who are disabled and people who aren't, and just discussing disability in general? The words I prefer using are disabled and non-disabled. A lot of people, well, some people are not comfortable using the word disability, but I'm comfortable using the word disability. The word disability for me is associated with civil rights because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and other civil rights protections that use the word disability. So maybe in this podcast we can use disability and non-disabled. That sounds good. I'll do that. On your website, you have a frequently asked questions that starts with some messages that we should avoid when talking about people who have disabilities. And I want you to tell us a little bit more about those messages and why we should avoid them. There's several messages to keep in mind. One message is when we talk about disability, we should avoid trying to judge people with disabilities as existing to help non-disabled people feel grateful that they don't have disabilities. <laughs> yeah. So often stories in the press will describe people with disabilities as inspiring non-disabled people to stop complaining. You know, like, you have no excuse. Disabled person did this. Therefore, non-disabled people should feel shame that they're not able to do this. That's not fair. That's disrespectful. It's still stigmatizing a group when you're using them to shame another group. I don't want disability to be used to inspire shame in anyone. The interesting thing about the disability community, it's the largest minority group and it's a group that anyone can join at any time. Our bodies are always changing. As we grow older, change is a natural part of, of growing older. And at every stage in our life, we deserve dignity, inclusion, and access to everything. So it's really, really important to respect those of us who are different. Rather than categorizing us as an other and stigmatizing, we should instead be welcoming to everyone because it's not really us versus them. We're all going to change. We're all going to be different at some point. It sounds like uh, part of the danger is in thinking that disability is something unlucky that happens to just a few people when really you could almost look at it as a spectrum that we all sit somewhere on it. Exactly. And there are actually a lot of people with disabilities. 
In the United States, there are about 57 million Americans with disabilities. And throughout the world, there are about 1.3 billion people with disabilities. That's a significant population. So when companies choose to be inclusive, they get to tap into this large market. It's good business to be inclusive because you get more customers, a larger audience. That means more business, more revenue in the long run. So when we talk about people with disabilities, we're talking about, I think, roughly a fifth of the population, which is a huge chunk. Exactly. And we're, we may also be talking about our future selves. And I think, though, a lot of people who don't think of themselves as having disabilities or who don't fall into that don't really understand how to empathize with the problems faced by people with disabilities in just moving around the world. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a lawyer so that we understand how that has played out in the law school and law experience that you've had. I'm deafblind. Most of this world is not designed to be accessible for people who are deafblind. So I've faced many barriers, but my disability is not a problem. The problem is the way the world is designed. People can choose to provide information in multiple formats, or they can choose to provide information only in one format. People can choose to design a building to have ramps and elevators so that people who use wheelchairs have access, or they could choose to only have stairs and deny access to people who use wheelchairs. So when there are barriers, it's not the disability that's the problem. The problem is the design and the choices that people make. I really like that way of thinking about it, and thanks for that clarification. The world is a design problem, and we've only designed it for some of the population. Exactly. Most schools are not accessible. I was very, very lucky. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, which happens to be the heart of the disability rights movement. The city of Berkeley was one of the first cities to have curve cuts so that wheelchair users can independently move from sidewalk to sidewalk and cross streets and travel around a city. A lot of disability rights access changes happened first in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I grew up here. So I benefited from many of these changes and I benefited from having teachers and going to schools that valued inclusion. So I had people telling me, yes, you can. I had people getting me all the materials I need in accessible formats. So I had access to school. I was able to learn math, science, English. If I had grown up two hours outside the Bay Area in other parts of California or in a different state in the United States, I probably would not have been able to get an education and go to college and definitely not go to law school. I know of other deafblind students in California who missed part of elementary school and middle school because the school refused to provide braille materials or they refused to provide interpreters. And the parents and students spent all their energy trying to advocate for access when they could have been learning. So there's a still so much unfairness here in the United States and limited access to materials 
And we need to change that. We need to make sure everyone has access to an education. One of the things that you've talked about before is just pointing out how many innovations that we all use came to us by way of designing for disability. What are some of your favorites? A lot of the technologies we use have been designed or inspired by people with disabilities. These stories are hidden. Very few people know about them. And I think it would be beneficial to get these stories out there and have more people learn about the stories. One example is Vin Cerf, one of the fathers of the internet, is hearing impaired. And before the internet existed as we know it today, deaf people didn't have an easy way to communicate long distance. Vin Cerf found that by sending electronic messages, electronic mail, he could communicate long distance with people without having to strain to hear on the telephone. And this benefits everyone. Email benefits everyone. Lots of people use email now. So that's an example of how something that helps the disability community, a solution inspired by disability, often has benefits for the whole world. And I think when Vint Cerf was using the internet over the phone lines, the phone lines were also designed by Alexander Graham Bell to overcome his uh, either his hard of hearing or his wife's difficulty in hearing, wasn't it? Yes. So Alexander Graham Bell did a lot of research to try to find ways to help deaf individuals communicate. And through that process, he ended up developing a telephone. So that's another example of how disability, when you see disability as a design challenge and design solutions, often these solutions benefit the entire community. So investing in hiring people with disabilities and making your businesses accessible drives innovation. You're more likely to have a more innovative workforce if you include people with disabilities. People who think differently are more likely to come up with innovative solutions. Diverse teams are stronger teams. You mentioned, uh, you've mentioned before that, and maybe this is just what you're getting at, but um, in designing things for people who have disabilities, you're probably solving problems for the world at large by doing that. And so by designing your firm or your business around accessible principles, you're probably building a more client-friendly firm for everyone. Exactly. And wouldn't everyone want more clients? Wouldn't you want to be able to tap into the largest market possible? Another thing to keep in mind is that the Americans with Disabilities Act prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities. There are also other laws, state laws and federal laws that prohibit discrimination against people with disabilities. So access is a right and it's really important for everyone to invest in inclusion. As a civil rights lawyer, I imagine you have a much clearer window into some of the ways that access to justice is harder for people with disabilities what are some of those challenges that those of us who aren't dealing with disabilities on a day-to-day -day basis may not be aware of? Some of the barriers that exist in terms of access to justice are physical. So courthouses, meeting spaces, 
that are not wheelchair accessible, designing access to people who use wheelchairs. And that could be lawyers who use wheelchairs. It could be judges who use wheelchairs. It could be clients who use wheelchairs. There is a lot of information online regarding legal services, and often information online is not accessible. The vast majority of websites and apps have access barriers. So we need people in the legal field to ensure that their websites and digital information is provided in accessible formats. The Web Content Accessibility Guidelines teaches people how to design websites to be accessible. For mobile apps, Apple and Android accessibility guidelines teach people how to design them to be accessible. Haben, have you had a chance to visit lawyerist.com? I'm wondering how well we've done. No, I haven't had a chance to visit it yet. We have uh, tried to design it around those accessibility principles, and it's not really that hard. And it turns out that a lot of those things that you would do to build an accessible website are the kinds of things that Google would like you to do to optimize for search engines. Because it turns out Google is also deaf and blind. That's a good point. When people make their services accessible, it increases content discoverability. So accessibility, some of the things that are necessary to do to make sure services are accessible online is to make sure you have text labels for images, for buttons, and when you increase the text associated with your content, you also help with search engine optimization. Those are things to keep in mind. Access benefits you in multiple ways. One of the things you mentioned when I heard you speak at the Clio Cloud Conference is that you have to be aware of trying to put accessibility on your app or your website or your building at the end. Can you say a little bit more about why that's a problem to try and add accessibility? It's much harder to try to add accessibility at the end of the design process. It's much easier to plan for it from the start. An example we often use is to compare to building a skyscraper. To ensure wheelchair access, a skyscraper needs an elevator. It's much harder to build the skyscraper without an elevator. And then once you're done building the skyscraper, to add an elevator afterwards, that's more costly, time consuming, takes more resources. It would be easier and cheaper to design the skyscraper to have an elevator, put it in the plans. Same thing with digital accessibility. If you plan for it from the start, it's easier to do. It sounds to me like Accessibility needs to be part of the lens through which you see the world and see the design problems and your client service delivery methods. Yeah, accessibility needs to be prioritized. Make sure your websites are accessible. Have your designers look at the web content accessibility guidelines and design the website based on those principles. It also helps with search engine optimization. Also keep in mind that there have been a lot of lawsuits these past few years regarding digital accessibility. I worked on one of those cases. It was a case called National Federation of the Blind versus Script. Script is a digital library and blind individuals wanted to be able to read books on the library. The way the library was designed though created barriers for blind readers and blind readers can read books on script. Script tried to argue 
that the Americans with Disabilities Act doesn't apply to online businesses. The judge in that case looked at our arguments and agreed with us and said that the Americans with Disabilities Act does apply to online businesses like Script. And Script and other online businesses need to adhere to the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that was an exciting, rewarding case to be involved with. And it's something that a lot of organizations need to keep in mind. So a bit of a stick and a bit of a carrot. Hey, Sam, can we take a few minutes break? My dog is crying. Yes, of course. Smokeball practice management software exists to streamline small law firms and reduce the stress of running a small business. With Smokeball, your firm is much more organized, productive, and profitable, meaning you and your staff can breathe easy with less stress. Visit smokeball.com lawyers today to learn more and book a demo. Like what you see? Lawyerist podcast listeners are eligible for 50% off onboarding. With Smokeball at your firm, it's less stress and more success. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six and seven figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay. Sorry about that, Sam. Thank you for your patience. Oh, of course. My dog is currently enjoying our freezing cold weather here in Minneapolis. Wow. My dog. So when I lived in Boston, we had to deal with snow. And she hated snow. She would refuse to go to the bathroom (laughs) when it started snowing because she didn't like snow on her ground. (laughs) (laughs) My dog is a husky, so my challenge is getting him to even come inside. Oh, husky, those are beautiful. He is very fuzzy. (laughs) Did you grow up in Minnesota? I I didn't. I grew up in Virginia, Panama, and the Dominican Republic. Wow, that's a fun and exciting childhood. It sure was. Uh Uh-huh, did you go surfing in the DR? I was... Uh, in second and third grade, so I don't think I got past a boogie board level. Uh, <laughs> but it was very cool. It's one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, I went there for a wedding, and it was amazing. And the staff were super friendly. Oftentimes, when I go into a restaurant here in the United States, the staff stare, but they don't really ask questions. Mm. In the Dominican Republic, I remember when I were when I was in restaurants, waiters would come up and ask, "What is this? What are you doing?" 
but not in a mean way, just in a friendly, curious way. And I just explain that it's a keyboard and braille display. People type on the keyboard, I read in digital braille. And I let them try it. And they typed in Spanish, and I know basic Spanish. I studied Spanish in high school and college. Hmm. So, hola, como estas? I was able to read that and respond back. Very cool. It seems like one of the problems, I'm sorry, it seems like one of the challenges is people who don't want to engage because they're shy or uncomfortable asking questions or approaching you. Yeah, I love questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. I don't mind if people ask me questions about disability. The thing to keep in mind is your intentions. It's more about attitude. If someone uses the wrong word, I'm not going to get offended. But if they have a pitying and disrespectful attitude, I'm not going to be happy. So it's more about their intentions, how they approach a situation. Is it friendly, respectful curiosity? Or is it pitying, questioning, implying that you don't belong, it should leave their establishment? So it's really about their intentions and attitude. When people come up and ask questions, I'm happy to explain. Deaf blindness is rare. I don't expect people to know about deaf blindness. My parents didn't understand deaf blindness. They hadn't heard of Helen Keller or Braille. My parents are from Eritrea and Ethiopia. So they were learning a whole new system. The American culture, our system here, and improving their English, in addition to learning about disability access, Braille, the civil rights movement, that sort of thing. So I'm used to people not knowing, and I don't mind teaching and explaining. As long as people are, are respectful and kind when they ask. It sounds like a lot of the solution to inclusion and to increasing accessibility is to include uh, at the beginning of every process, whether it's uh, creating a business or a building or meeting a new person to favor inclusion rather than getting to it later. Yeah, plan for it from the start. Make it a priority before you build something, whether it's a new building, a website, an app, a program. Take the time to plan about accessibility. How can you make sure everyone in your community is welcome? And if you're not sure, do the research. Look up the web content accessibility guidelines. Engage with the disability community. There may be disability organizations in your area. If not, you could tap into national networks. You can contact disability rights experts like myself. You can reach me. I have a website, habengirma.com. I'm also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and people can find and follow me there. So reach out to people if you don't know the answers. Definitely start asking questions with the intention of trying to welcome everyone. And I think what people will find as they try to open up their practices, their websites, the court system, is that it's actually not as hard as it seems like it might be once you get started. Exactly. It's really not as hard as it seems. Oftentimes, disability access needs are, are free, simple, easy. 
the vast majority of people with disabilities can explain what they need. And if you ask, people can help point you in the right direction of what you need to do. Sometimes it's being flexible, maybe moving a meeting place from an inaccessible spot to an accessible spot. Maybe it's just moving furniture a little bit to create more room. Maybe it's bringing in an interpreter. Maybe it's switching from telephone to email or, or using a chat service that provides access. So just being flexible about how you communicate, where you communicate, will allow you to connect with more people. That sounds awesome. I hope that lawyers who are listening are starting to think about ways that they can bring that fifth of the country who is disabled in and help them find legal services and make them clients. I strongly encourage everyone to think of this as a business opportunity. It's not charity. It's good business for all of us to be inclusive because you get to tap into a larger market. Sam just said it's one-fifth of the population, 57 million Americans with disabilities. That's a significant market. So it benefits all of us to be inclusive. Haben, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for spotlighting inclusion, Sam, and creating the opportunity to teach more people about disability access. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 o